Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, it's a cliche that a picture is worth a thousand words. In Pete Souza's case, one of his pictures is worth 10,000 words, really one of the great photojournalists on the planet. Pete's had a long, distinguished career in photojournalism, as well as the official photographer for two American presidents. He cataloged the Obama presidency. I travel with him quite a bit during those years. Now he has a book out of 300 of the 1.9 million photos he took uh, during those years that really tell the story of the administration. He came to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago uh, to display and talk about that work. And we got a chance to sit down and talk about his extraordinary career and experiences chronicling history. Pete Souza, my my old buddy, it's good to see you. I, I knew you before you were a cult figure, so <laughs> I, uh, I I'm glad I'm I'm glad to see you. Thanks for being here and at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics. Looking forward to your presentation. Hey man, I'm 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 excited to be here. So I want to ask you a bunch of questions that I should have asked you all those times when we were sitting around various places waiting for something to happen or flying on planes and so on. But uh, I know that you grew up in Massachusetts, uh, and I know that your family came originally from uh, uh, Portugal, from the Azores. So, but just tell me a little bit about how you grew up. Uh, so I grew up in, uh, I was born in New Bedford, uh, uh, which in the 1860s was actually the richest City in the world because of whaling. It was a big whaling port. Uh, but I grew up mm-hmm. in South Dartmouth, which mm-hmm. is uh, just, uh, I guess, a suburb, if you will, of of uh, New Bedford. My mom was a nurse, registered nurse. My dad was a boat mechanic. And um, both of them seemingly worked all the time. And it's funny, you look back now on on their life, uh, my mom's 91. My dad is deceased. But like my mom used to work the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. 7 a. shift when we were um, kids. And like I didn't think much of it then, but when you think about that now, um, she would get us off to school. You had brothers and sisters? Or- yeah. To, uh, well, I had a sister that was a couple years older than me. I had a younger sister, but I didn't really grow up with her. She was 12 years younger. So my mom would get us off to school in the morning after having just gotten back from work, you know, and get us off to school, make us breakfast, and then she would take a nap and then be there when we got home from school at 3, 
Um, then she would make us dinner um, and get us to bed. And then she would leave the house at 1030 and go work the overnight shift. And when you think about that now, it's like, my God, how – like it's just – it's almost disbelief that she actually – function like that you know most of the time she's working at st luke's hospital in new bedford but then she switched and worked at a uh, a nursing home in in dartmouth and you talk about full circle uh she now is she's she's doing this rehab um because she just had uh you know somewhat of a health setback so she's doing a a a, a rehab at the same nursing home that she used to work at, that's, that's which is like crazy to think about. Well, it also speaks to how deep her roots in that community are. Yeah. So and then like uh, it, big I, Portuguese community in in Massachusetts, New Bedford was yeah. not not so much uh, Dartmouth. Um, I and I was not a good student. I was probably like the least likely person to succeed in my high school. Were you officially voted that, or do you think that was just a consensus thing? Well, I think that was probably a consensus thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and when and did you when did this interest in photography begin? So uh, I, I went to Boston University um, after my guidance counselor uh, urged me not to apply there. Because he said I would never get in. That yeah. My grades weren't good enough. My SAT scores were not. And like I, you know, just despite him, I applied anyway. And for I had, by the way, that same experience at the University of Chicago. My, they told me don't apply. Yeah, you won't get in. I did get in, and then went and spent the next four years proving why I shouldn't have been admitted. But anyway, <laughs> go, go. I, it's funny because I actually did better in college than I did in high school. Um, so. Uh, I, I went there because I was a huge sports fan, but I was not a good athlete. Um, so I decided I was going to become a sports writer. That was my uh, that was my goal. And so I applied to the journalism school. Uh, it was called the uh, School of Public Communication. Uh, it's now the College of Communication, and uh, with the with the hopes of becoming a sports writer. And then in my junior year, I took a photography class. And it was almost probably the first time that I, after I had developed a roll of film and I'm making the print in the darkroom in that tray of developer. And when that first image appeared, uh, I was hooked. And I was like, okay, this is magic. I want to do this. You know, we should say, I, I think you know that there are a lot of people listening who are wondering what you mean when you say a roll of film and developing and and all of that that was a part of the coin different era <laughs> yeah different era but uh you know it strikes me you um i mean your 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 photos are i mean you're a friend and we went on a journey together so i have some bias but your photos are spectacular and you know there's that old thing about a picture uh, is worth a thousand words pictures are really do tell the story in in ways that words only can partially tell. I think, um, you know, photographs not only capturing a, a decisive moment, but trying to um, authentically portray the, uh, the mood 
and the emotion of uh, of what's taking place. You, I think it's sometimes you can do that better with a photograph if the person look looking at the photograph feels that feels that same thing. I mean, photography is subjective more so than words, and um, you've you've got to capture people's attention. So, uh, so they so, so they get to sort of feel what maybe you were trying to show. I uh, watched you work uh, quite a bit, and I would watch you um, silently move around rooms because part of what your job was was to be as inobtrusive as possible as you were photographing, you know, often historic scenes, sometimes not historic but meaningful. Um, and so what are the calculations that you're making when you when you're when you're picking the spot you want to shoot from when you're framing up uh the photo how what are the calculations that you go through uh to get to the point where you have a photo that actually says something so hard to articulate that um that's why you're a photographer it's 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 uh you know i i i feel that uh even though i was a seasoned guy as they say uh, during the Obama administration, I, I felt that was a huge advantage in um, having had so many experiences in photography and photojournalism that I was sort of unfazed by all the power that was before me. That was really helpful to have the confidence um, to, uh, to, to, to be there, that I know I, I needed to be there and that I had the uh, trust of Barack Obama to allow me to be there because he could have, you know, made it difficult for me, and he didn't. And I think that um, the fact that he had the trust in me it made it hard for anyone else to question why I was in the room, and that was that's that's the hardest thing to. Uh, to, to get over is you've got to be you got to be there you can't like write about it afterwards um, you know a reporter can interview people in the room afterwards they don't they wouldn't have to be in the room right but, but they a can moment still, is a moment but a moment is a moment you've got to you've got to be there so the fact that I had that uh, uh, trust from from President Obama that that's that meant everything in terms of like you know moving around and trying to frame a picture and waiting for anticipating the moment and clicking the camera at just the precise moment and what to include in the frame, what not to include in the frame. That's like, uh, so hard to, as I said, articulate it's intuition in so many ways. You know, I made a thousand thousands probably of ads when I was uh, doing that work as a political media person. And, um, when I would then try and teach, about it, it was interesting to me because you slow, you know, you sl- you show these ads and you realize there are about a, a you know, a, a hundred different decision points about what images you use, what music you use, what type you use, you know, and of course the words you use, uh, and you there's a reason for everything you do, uh, 
that you don't even think about after a while because it's instinctive. It's, it's, it's the product of a lot of experience. So on that note, let me ask you, um, you obviously, you talked about being seasoned when you got to the Obama administration, but you started somewhere. I mean, you started at little newspapers in, in, in Kansas. Uh, what, what was it that, uh, what did you, what was it like then as kind of a raw rookie photographer? What were the kinds of things that you were shooting then? What did you learn from that experience? Uh, the great thing about uh, uh, newspapers, especially small newspapers in Kansas, is that you're doing something different every day. You're, you're doing sometimes three, four assignments. So you learn to think quick, react quick, uh, and still uh, uh, go into the dark room. As I said, this is like in, in, the, in the old days. In, as in we the say, dark ages. In you got to develop ages, the film yes. and make yeah. a print and 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 all that. So it was um, it was it was a, a trial by fire, and um, you know you learn by making mistakes. Your you know your name is under every picture in the in the newspaper. That's an incentive not to mess up, right? <laughs> You don't, you don't want to put a bad picture and have your name under it. So the, the, I was always trying to make a good picture for for every assignment, no matter how bad it was. And that's challenging, it, 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 you know, especially sometimes in Kansas where, you know, if there's a dog that crosses the street at 1 o'clock, you know, that has a potential to be to page one photo, you know, because <laughs> especially when you're in a town like Chanute, Kansas. <laughs> Uh, you know, which we had a circulation of uh, six thousand, um, and I went but right. A lot of dog owners. A lot of dog owners. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's also you. You. I mean, I have a. I had a, a guy uh, punch me out in Chinook, Kansas, because I was taking pictures of his factory on fire that police suspected he had started himself to collect insurance money. I had a. Uh, um, an irate father uh, come and storm into the publisher's office because I had taken a picture of uh, uh, his son's automobile accident that killed someone that his son was responsible for. And, you know, why they lashed out at me, I don't know. It wasn't – I didn't kill the, the girl. The, his son did. But, you know, so things like that that you realize your photographs do have an impact even – with a newspaper that only has a circulation of six thousand, uh, how'd you get up to Chicago? You 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 wound up with the Chicago Sun Times in yeah. the early eighties. In fact, I was working across the street at the time at the Tribune. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know you, but I'll, I'll bet if I went back through all my old negatives, I'd see you in the background at you know some of the Harold Washington events yeah. that I covered. Um, so I somebody recommended me for a job to the Sun Times. It was just like I got a call one day from. Henry Gill, who is the director of photography at the Sun-Times, and he called me. He goes, we want you to come interview. And I was like, well, I work every day. I can't. He goes, no, we want you to come interview. So I I, I uh, flew up to Chicago, and he hired me. And uh, so I went from a 6,000 circulation daily to a 600,000 circulation daily. And a city where probably the dog crossing at one was not going to make no. the front page. No. What, what, so how was that adjustment from uh, – from from small town Kansas to Chicago, uh, it, it was. Um, <laughs> it was. I, I. I mean, I have to say, having lived in Boston during during uh, uh, 
during my college days. I, I, I had been in a big city before, so that part of it was okay. Uh, but it was just the types of assignments you were getting, which were you know much bigger. You were covering major league sports, and you were covering you know spot news that were that was big spot news, and you were covering covering politics. I, I, I was there when Jane Byrne was the mayor, and I was covering her a lot, and covering the city council meetings and. Ed Verdoliak and like just yeah, being- for people who don't know, I mean, these were this was kind of a crazy period in Chicago political history. Jane Byrne was this very um, uh, interesting kind of sometimes wacky uh, but tough uh, woman who beat the Democratic organization of which she once was part, and then had this very tumultuous uh, uh, reign of four years as mayor. I covered City Hall. For uh, for part of that, uh, so I covered the, the the end of her mayorship and then the a little bit of of uh, Harold Washington, you know, who eventually became the first African American uh, mayor of Chicago. Yeah, well, so, well, tell me about them as characters to shoot these people. Well, um, I think you described Byrne fairly well. Um, it it it, <laughs> it was it, you know we never had like. Uh, access to burn when she was like doing the real people's business is always these more public events that were all kind of like or doing business to the people or doing business suggested. to the people yeah. Yeah. yeah um and then you know and harold washington was such a big personality and wasn't he oh someone's just asked me about him today because this is we're coming right up on the 30th anniversary of his untimely death he died at yeah. his desk at city hall yeah. I, i've never met a more ebullient personality in politics. In fact, I often say, you know, I think that had he lived, that he and Barack Obama would have been friends. I think they would have been, they would have had an interesting relationship, sort of mentor to mentee, because Harold was such an interesting character, but must have been incredibly fun to shoot. Yeah, he was. He was. And, um, and then, uh, you know, almost Prematurely, I was offered a job in the Reagan White House. It was yeah, how did that happen? First of it, all, I should point out that you know you came up from Kansas, and within a year and a half, you were named the Illinois Photographer of the Year. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you you took to this pretty quickly. But but that's a, but making the leap from the Chicago Sun Times to the White House. Is it was, a pretty big leap. How did that happen? It's totally, un, totally unexpected. I, I actually, uh, you know, turned it down at first. Because, Why? Because I was uh, in a really good situation in Chicago. I, I, I really felt that I was growing as a as a photojournalist. I was working with you know John White, the legendary yeah. three time Pulitzer Prime, uh, yeah. Prize winner. Yeah, and. People like Richard Dirk and Perry Riddle—I mean, just uh, p- pillars of, of photojournalism—and so it's great to be uh, on that staff. And and um, it is a fairly small community, and and the the White House photo editor who had been at the Kansas City Star, Carol Greenewald, uh, follow, was following my career and and. Uh, she was working for Michael Evans, who was Reagan's chief photographer, and they had an opening. They actually had to um, dismiss someone, 
And so they had this opening in 1983, so the middle of Reagan's first term. And she just like called me up one day out of the blue and said, we want you to apply for this job. And I'm like, you know, A, I was not really that into politics. B, I was really not the biggest fan of Reagan. But, you know, you, you, you hope that what you're doing is important for history, right? It used to say journalism is the first draft of history. And I'm thinking like, okay, here's a chance to actually really be involved in documenting history. This is an important point because you you approached these assignments and you worked in two White Houses, uh, which bracketed a, a career in journalism. You don't see that much of a separation between the two. You see your job as the White House photographer as a as a form of photojournalism. It is. I mean, it, you know, th- there would be outrage by photojournalists to refer to me as a photojournalist <laughs> yeah. within the White House. But I mean, like, I don't send think- your emails to Pete Souza, by the, the way, all the photojournalists <laughs> who are listening. I, I don't like uh, when you when you're at, when you're at the White House as a White House photographer. It's not like you suddenly switch gears and you start using, a, a, you know, like you start taking pictures differently. Or you you're, you change the style of of how you take it's the same thing it's the same thing now yes I am on the government payroll and I you know, well the question I, is I guess did you were there occasions when in either White House when there were photos that you thought were worthy of uh, public consumption that uh, and a decision was made now nah, we're not gonna we're not well, gonna yeah, share that one. sure I mean during the Reagan administration. Uh, in eighty was it eighty six or eighty seven? Like this, I, I forget when Iran Iran Contra was going on, and I mean I have some pictures that um, th- that I really feel reflected the mood, and the the, the White House would would not make them public, um, but when I published a book. Uh, Reagan himself was was okay with me making them public. This was ninety three, ninety three, because yeah. it was in the within. It was the, after his administration. After his administration, and, and you're putting things into context, right? Yeah. It's not like you're, um, um, uh, you know, putting them out at the time, which I understand why yeah. the White yeah. House would not want to. Yeah, we're gonna take a short break, and we'll be right back with Pete Souza. What was Ronald Reagan like? You know, in some he is a. So we're not really taking a break. It's just you're just saying that. <laughs> no, we 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 For will commercial. have commercial. We, we Sorry, will, I'm just messing with you. Well, I we, get it. We get will it. have taken we will have taken a break. <clears throat> Who knows? We may be promoting your book in ad form uh, yeah, in that in between. I get which it. It, just Sorry. if little Brown wants just, to buy uh, that slot. But uh, anyway, tell tell me what Reagan was like because that's still a mystery to this day. Uh, I mean, he has kind of mythic status now in American politics, and yet people, very few people seem to really know what he he was like. I wish I could tell you. I don't know that I know. Um, if you talk to his son, I mean, I think he would say the same thing. Very difficult guy to get under his skin and really figure out what made him tick. Uh, I will say this, you know, the one uh, aspect of his personality that was similar to President Obama is he was very even-tempered. And 
um, it would it would take a lot to get him really riled up as it would President Obama. I did get him. I did see him get riled up. Uh, what he, kinds of things would rile him up? Oh, so I'll give you an example, and you may have to uh, give the background a little bit more. But there was this controversy when he accepted a visit from German Chancellor Kohl to go visit a cemetery in Bitburg. Yes. Which uh, turns out um, the graves of uh, SS uh, soldiers were buried there, Hitler's elite guard, which when he accepted the invitation, um, he didn't, uh, the, the White House didn't realize it. And then it was before the visit, it was, it was un- un- uncovered. And he was being... Everyone on the White House staff, Mrs. Reagan, Ely, your friend Ely Wiesel, Ellie Wiesel, yeah, uh, was uh, telling him he could not go and visit there, and he had this stubborn reaction, which was another head of state asked me to do this visit, and unless he rescinds the invitation, I'm going. Yeah, and you know he argued with his wife about it, which was. Un- unusual, at least in front of you. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it was like his his he just felt that strongly about it, and so stuff like that. Yeah. He would, and he would get PO'd when people try to. Yeah, and probably angry as presidents get when they feel like there's been bad staff work or. Yeah, or, yeah, and 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 it's it's ironic. The staff work is such that there was a, a pre-advanced team. So there's that's a, a team that goes over months before to like sort of set the stage for the visit. And Mike Deaver was part of that pre-advanced team. Mike he, Deaver was uh, the president's uh, longtime aide who really was sort of the producer of the Reagan absolutely. sort of public production. So when he went to visit the cemetery, it was winter and the cemetery was filled with snow and they did not see the graves. I see. So... Yeah. Uh, so many of your photos of Reagan are with Nancy, uh, and they're very, very warm. I mean, that's the place where you really see him light up. Uh, their relationship uh, seemed almost as if they lived in a bubble of their own. They they, they were very close. It was not uh, like a made-for-TV kind of relationship. It, it, it was uh, a real relationship. They 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 truly did love each other. They were their each other's best friends. He was not happy when she was on a you know out of town on a foreign trip. Um, he was not happy when he was on a long foreign trip without her. Um, and and it, he just he just like uh, it was it was really a partnership. Now I will say that she never got involved with uh, policy. But she did very much get involved with personnel, as I think uh, we we all know now. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, you have uh, you and I had spoken once about Reagan? Uh, for, I should ask you first before I get to this. I mean, you as a person, how did he treat you? How did he treat the people around him? Um, I, I mean, I've I've, I've said this. Uh, before I, I I respected him as a person, like he was a, he was a decent human being. I didn't always agree like with his politics per se, um, 
but it, it, and if he had not been like a, a decent human being and treated people with respect, I don't know that I could have, you know, stayed there. I mean, I stayed the, the last I was there the last five and a half years of his administration. And I don't think I would have lasted that long if like I didn't respect him. You were there for a long time. And, and we talked about this. You know, Reagan, it's no obviously everyone now knows that he was older when he got there and he ultimately uh, uh had to deal with Alzheimer's, and there was some question as to the end of his administration. Um, you know what what the state of his acuity was, and you you said that uh, that the one thing you noticed was that he would take notes later in his administration. You remember me telling you that? I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember everything you've ever told me. So uh, that's that's scary. <laughs> except the things you asked me to forget. Uh, so tell me. Uh, Tell, tell me about that. So that was w- one of the things that I knew was that he did keep a diary. I mean, I, I, I had never seen it, but I knew that he, at the end of the day, he would go up to the residence and, and he would write in his diary. And sometimes it was short annotations, uh, you know, which we saw when, 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 when the diary was published. Yeah. published. Um, the, and he, he would get a, uh, a pocket schedule, much like... Uh, Barack Obama did that he would keep in his suit coat you know it's just a very what would you say like three inches wide by seven inches tall and it would have a schedule on it and I noticed the last you know now I forget if it was six months or last year or so um, he would be in and these meetings and he uh, would occasionally write something on the back of his schedule I had never seen him do that uh, in in the, like the first four and a half years I was there, and I never asked him about it or you know, but I but I'm an observer. That's my job as as a photographer. You're supposed to be an observer, and I observed that. And my suspicion was that he was getting up to the residence at night and maybe was not remembering details. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, like. I could do that myself now, and it would be helpful. You yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. Because you tend to, even in your 50s and 60s, you tend to start like, you know, remembering details. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's sort of like why James Comey wrote down notes after he had been in a. Well, meeting. you may have had a few other reasons for you that. Had a as few well. other readings, but yeah. <laughs> but the point being that no, I understand. He was trying to, you know, and whether that had anything to do with. Alzheimer's or not, I, I but some you know, recognition that maybe he, 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 was, he was failing down. a little. Yeah, but I mean, he was in his people don't under he was, he was seventy seven. I think right, which which I don't think the one thing that was really a revelation to me, and you knew this because you had been there, was just how exacting, just how tough being president of the United States is. I mean, you know, it's sort of a cliche to say, well, that's the hardest job on the planet. But until you see it, and what comes to that desk every single hour of every single day and through the night and into the weekends unrelentingly, uh, it is an unbelievable grind. It, and the thing that I was always um, impressed with about, well, amongst the many things, but impressed with about, uh, I mean, we're, we're skip jumping up to the last administration yeah, with we, President Obama. Was but but on that same tone, 
is on these long Asia trips, and you know what those are like. Yes. They're brutal. Yeah. And when you're the uh, uh, the guy that then has to go before all the cameras and answer questions and be able to artic- articulate policy and answer – like for Barack Obama to do that with like having been on a trip for 10 days and not had good sleep and had these all-day meetings and still never mess up. I, I, I still – And not send grouchy tweets at the end of the 12 days. That's, uh, yeah, that well, was that's, another feature yeah. of that. So you uh, – when you left the White House, you went to work uh, for my old paper, the, for the, the Chicago Tribune. And um, one of the uh, – one of your assignments uh, was out of Washington. But you, you, you also covered some war, and yeah. in, including Afghanistan. Um, was that your first experience with with war coverage? Uh, it, b- before I went to Afghanistan and, and right after 9-11, I, I did cover uh, the refugee crisis in Kosovo. And then uh, when NATO finally uh, uh, crossed the border into Kosovo, um, I was with the, uh, the NATO troops and we, you know, we had a few close calls mm-hmm. in, in Kosovo, but nothing like uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, well, tell me about that and what that experience was like. I looked at some of your photos from from that period, and uh, I mean, they're they're striking and incredible. Um, the thing that uh, there was one photo of a young child whose uh, legs had been amputated that was just wrenching. But the faces of these children. Uh, was the thing that struck me the most. But tell tell me what that experience was like. Yeah, it was um, it was it was amazing, and in some ways was one of the more fulfilling things I've ever done in my uh, career. Because um, this this was the the first uh, war where digital cameras were good enough. And even though there was very little electricity in Afghanistan with a satellite phone, you could send images back. So, uh, so I was my my images were appearing in the in the Tribune every day, and I was getting uh, like hundreds of emails from readers, and, uh, and and I really felt that I was doing doing good work, and people were seeing it and paying attention to it. But it was but it was a it was a very treacherous. Trip. Uh, I came in. Uh, this is when the Pakistan border was still closed, and the U.S. had started an air campaign. And before any U.S. troops were even on the ground, I got into Afghanistan on horseback. Uh, Why well, I crossed uh, the uh, the uh, river. I forget the name of the river in uh, uh, from Tajikistan the in the Kush north mountains. No, but this is before that. To actually get into Afghanistan, uh, I had to cross a river uh, on this little raft, uh, and um, from Tajikistan, from the north. So that got us above the Hindu Kush mountains, and then by horseback we went over the Hindu Kush mountains. And it was it was already, uh, even though it was October, it was already winter there. There was like three feet of snow. It was like below zero once the sun went down and you know it was like we almost froze to death on that mountain um and then we finally got into the pancher valley and we're we're close to Kabul, and our timing was impeccable because 
um, four days after we got outside of Kabul, uh, the the U.S. started really dropping B-52 bombs and the Northern Alliance, which were the soldiers that we were supporting within Afghanistan, fighting the Taliban. They made their final push into Kabul like four days after we got in the valley. So we were so like lucky to be there when all that happened. But there was like a lot of you know, that's that's that is the view of a journalist who say we were lucky to be there when it happened. A lot of people would say, "Gee, this is not very lucky to be here when this no, is happening." It, but but and I was lucky in that you know I remember one time as we were walking along the front lines and you could hear clear, crystal clear, sniper bullets from the Taliban whistling over your head, and you didn't you didn't know if it was. Two feet over your head or twenty feet over your head. Yeah, but and it was you like, said, a, "Man, am I lucky? I'm lucky. <laughs> I'm lucky." Um, I I, I want to get to the 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 man who's the subject of the the great and wonderful collection of photos that you just released, uh, Obama: uh, An Intimate Portrait. Uh, that. Experience began in uh, 2005. The, the Chicago Tribune decided that they were going to, and I remember this because I was uh, on the Obama end of things when they proposed this, uh, they were going to follow him for a year as a new freshman senator uh, in Washington on the theory that this guy was going places. You've said that that was your impression almost from the minute that you saw him. Is that, is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, I had I had never met him. I, I was one of the few people who hadn't seen the 2004 convention speech uh, because I was traveling with John Kerry. It was good. I know it was good. Yeah. I, I've, I've since seen it, but at the time. <laughs> and my only knowledge of him was the profile that The New Yorker had done. Um, so that was my only, like, real sort of intimate knowledge about who this guy was. Um but two things struck me. One, right away, I met him on his first day in the Senate. That was the first time I had met him. And I'll, I'll show this picture tonight. Four or five is you, you, he's gonna, You're going to be displaying these pictures for gonna, a I'm group sh- at the university here. Yeah. Tonight, yeah, and there's a couple pictures from Senate days just to get us started. That's a great picture of him running up the Senate steps. Yeah, but the picture I'm referring to is there's a picture of him with uh, Sasha and Malia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that very first day. So I've only I've known the guy four hours. I'm tagging along with him. I'm not really talking to him much because that's not my job. He's you know it's mm-hmm. kind of a ceremonial day, and he goes into this little office. And he was to, a temporary space then. So, yeah, yeah, and and he he had to he had to quickly uh, eat a sandwich because it was the only chance he was going to eat. So he's eating, eating this sandwich. Sasha Malia with him. It's a very intimate picture on mm-hmm. this. You and I are about what four feet apart. I'm about this close to him, and I'm making this really intimate picture. And there's no recognition that I'm even there. That he's just like so comfortable in his own skin, and it, and it's somehow it's translated to Sasha and Malia, where they're not even paying attention to me. And I'm thinking like, just because of that, I'm thinking this guy is a good subject mm-hmm. for a photographer because that's what you want. You don't want them to be self conscious. You want to be able to capture whatever they're doing in a natural way. And I just saw that the first day. But then, more than anything, I, was, I saw how people were reacting to him. 
and how he was able to connect with people, whether he was talking to them or whether he was, you know, more doing the, the, uh, um, uh, the, not the grandstanding, but the the retail kind of politics where you're just having a conversation with someone. He connected that way, and he connected when he was talking from a podium in, in a way that was really impressive right away. You also saw him connect with people overseas. I you, did. You, you went yeah. on two trips with him I did. Uh, in that period, 2005, 2006, one to Russia and Eastern Europe uh, and uh uh, you guys actually got detained over there, I think. We did get detained for yeah. like you know three or four hours. Yeah, and 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 uh, I forget the name of the town, but it was in Russia. And you know, Jeff Zeleny was with me, uh, reporter for the Tribune. Now, it was, now with CNN. Yeah. Now with CNN, and he and he, uh, he he somehow got a text message back to the uh, editors in Chicago, and we had CNN up course on the tv in this little airport cnn international and you know nobody knew we were being detained but jeff got this text message out and the next thing we know we saw on the, the scroll bar you know <laughs> two senators detained in Dick russia Luger from indiana <laughs> right, was Dick with Luger. you as well the second trip was to uh can you i should ask you about one in between were you with him when he went down to katrina i was not yeah. i was not uh i wish i had been there yeah that was uh that was an extraordinary. I wasn't there either. I couldn't get the Tribune to, to pay for me to go. I really wanted to. But. <laughs> I don't know which editor was responsible for that, but I hope they're listening right now. Uh, Kenya uh, and Africa, the Africa trip in 2006, in the summer of 2006, that was an extraordinary spectacle, really. Well, the, 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 we first went to South Africa and and he, amongst other things, went and visited uh, Nelson Mandela's cell. You you shot some extraordinary photos of him in that cell on yeah. Robben Island. Yeah, that, that that was amazing. Well, and and then he went to Kenya to go to the village where his uh, his grandmother lived, and that was crazy. I mean, I don't know how else to say because like the the entire village pulled out. I remember. Uh, be, be, actually, before we even went to the, his grandmother's village, we were in, I'm trying to think of the name of the town, but he, he wanted to do a public AIDS test, have his blood tested uh, to, 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 encourage others to, to encourage others to do it. And there were like thousands of people like there to watch. They're sitting in the trees. People are yelling. It's, it was like crazy, just crazy, out of control, excitement, not... There wasn't like violence, but it, it did just... speak to the fact that he was a, kind of a transcendent figure, even as a young senator, yeah. particularly because of his ties to to Africa. Yeah, um, and then uh, when, then then uh, the uh, the family joined him at uh, Masai Mara, and they they uh, uh, went on a uh, safari, which was uh, was incredible too. Um. You, uh, you joined him. You were. Uh, let me let me take a short break, and we'll be right back with Pete Souza. You joined the administration uh, from the beginning. Uh, did you have any second thoughts about 
doing that? I mean, you had done this before. Now you were re-upping, and uh, you, you did it as a young man. Now you were seasoned, as you said before. Well, and um, I, I, I never had the desire to do it again. Um, but I, I, I often thought to myself, well, if I ever do this again, I want to be the, uh, you know, the head guy. And I want to really do it the way it's supposed to be done. And there, there was a guy who I had always admired. I never met him, Yoshi Okamoto. Uh, his nickname was Oki. And he was LBJ's photographer. Uh, and he was probably the first official White House photographer to truly document a president for history. He had, like, access to everything. And so that was the... Uh, approach I wanted to take. And I remember when Gibbs, Robert Gibbs, your mm-hmm. friend and colleague, was uh, calling me as the emissary for the president-elect. Uh, and when he called me to offer me uh, the job, I said, well, I, 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 I definitely want to do this, but I need to have access to everything. And I remember he just said, uh, the president-elect gets it. <laughs> that was it. I mean, that was that was the... Essence and, of that you were in, conversation. It's funny you should mention the LBJ uh, photos and the LBJ administration because so many of those photos that came out of the White House uh, really reflected the stress of those times uh, of the Vietnam War, of uh, the civil rights battles and so on. A lot of it was LBJ working and a lot of it was LBJ anguishing as he worked. Uh, and you captured a lot of that. Uh, President Obama came to office in some very stressful times, greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression, couple uh, two wars, uh, and uh, there was a lot of tension. And a lot of your photos reflect that. And I was saying to someone the other day that um, we, we uh, the administration made the decision early on to make a lot of these pictures public right away, uh, you know, with social media. Uh, you know, we used the Flickr photo stream. And first, thing, first administration. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess it was and, the first time it was available. And, and, and I suspect that no matter who had been president, who had been the photographer, the, the, you know, the same, a different president and a different photographer would have, would have done the same thing. But it, it, the, uh, we, we were trying to be authentic. So a lot of the pictures, especially in 2009, 2010, reflected that, as you call it, anguish, and were subsequently, in, in years to come, used out of context in political ads, which is the risk that you take when you release pictures like that. Yeah, yeah. There were there were there were moments of uh, of of triumph too, and one I love is him uh, walking off the podium. He went to Baltimore to speak to the Republican House Caucus. Oh, I love that picture. And uh, he yeah. he cha- and it was broadcast because right. we asked for it to be broadcast. Right. And he had essentially a live debate over right. health care with the Republican caucus, and he's leaving and knowing... He's just cleaned their clocks. And he knew it, and you and can see it, it on his face, and he's brushing past a very stoic Mike, Mike Pence. Pence. Yeah. yeah. I love that picture because that one, to me, accurately reflected what had just happened, where I think the Republicans were stunned that this guy knew a hell of a lot more about the health care bill and health care in general than all of them put together. 
Yeah, I don't think he was ever invited back. Certainly no, not with cameras. Not live TV. Yeah, not with cameras. Um, maybe the most famous photo you ever shot was uh, in May of uh, of 2011 uh, on the day of the Bin Laden raid. And uh, but and I think people have seen that photo. But describe that photo the way you see it through the way you saw it through your lens and and the way you saw the moment. Um, as you know, the Situation Room is comprised of three conference rooms. The president's always in the big conference mm-hmm. room, but the the communications link set up for this raid were in this was in this little tiny conference room across the hall. So everybody just like piled in there, and they're really that's jammed in in this room, and the president's not even seated at the head of the table, because there was a brigadier general on a laptop who was in direct communication um, with I, I I believe Admiral McRaven, mm-hmm. um, who was in Afghanistan, yeah. and so he was ready to give up his chair for President Obama, and the president's like no. You stay right where you are. I'll just pull up a chair next to you. But so everyone is is monitoring this raid as it's happening for 40 minutes, usually in a situation room meeting. There's lots of discussion back and forth. The president's talking. Secretary of State's talking. There's, you know, sometimes there's arguments. Sometimes there's policy differences. They're hashing it all out. For 40 minutes, there was no discussion. There was observation, including by me and my. They were observing what was taking place on the screen, and I was observing them watching it. And I think if you look at all those tense faces, um, you see the tension that was in that room. And one of the reasons why is you have the most powerful people in the federal government all jammed into this room, and they're essentially powerless. They cannot affect in any way the outcome of what they're watching. It's up to those guys on the ground, and I think it was somewhat of a you know a helpless feeling because you you know you wanna you wanna help in some way, but you can't. They had already made their decision in the days and weeks before, and now they're just there. Now, was that moment that you shot that photo? Was that during the period of time when you when the helicopter had crashed? Or was it uh, after that? It, it was. It was not when the helicopter crash. Uh, I can't tell you exactly when it was, but in looking at the uh, line by line of the mission itself, and one of the good things about a digital camera is everything you is time stamped. Yeah. So it's towards the end of the mission, and what I'm pretty sure it was when the special forces were inside the house and there was no uh, direct link to what was going on. And so I think that uh, they were waiting for them to come out of the house, hopefully all intact. Because, like, you know, this thing could have gone really wrong. I mean, there a helicopter crash right away. And and Admiral McRaven, being the genius that he was, had backup helicopters nearby and the pilot – being the genius pilot that he was, crashed that helicopter in a way that no one got hurt, um, which is amazing when you think about it. Um, so, but it could have gone, re- it could have gone really bad. 
uh, that mission, as sometimes happens. What an incredible thing to, I mean, there probably isn't anybody else who witnessed as much history other than the president himself than you. Uh, I've seen a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, you the, some of the photos that were most impactful were not these big historic occasions, but poignant ones like the photo which I have uh, in my office of the the little boy touching the president's hair uh, in the Oval Office. Uh, explain that photo and and what you were thinking when you when you took it. Uh, so the little boy was Jacob Philadelphia. He was four years old at the time. Uh, his dad was a foreign service worker who had, uh, non-political, so had worked during the Bush administration, carried over to Obama, had come in with his family into the Oval Office for a family photo with the president standing in front of the desk. They finished the photo. The mom says, Mr. President, Jacob has a question for you. And Jacob you know, imagine being four years old, talking to the president of the United States. So it's kind of more of a whisper about, mm-hmm. you know, his friend said that his hair is like his. And um, the president bends over and says, go ahead and touch it. And you have this little four-year-old boy um, touching uh, the head, feeling the head of the president of the United States, who's bending over at the waist in front of him. And... Jacob's eyes are just glued right to the president's head as he's touching him. And it was, I shot one frame of that. It happened so fast. It was unexpected. Um, And I didn't even know for sure that I had the picture until later that night. Um, And I think it it later resonated with so so many people, mostly because imagine, people could imagine. Uh, a four-year-old African-American kid uh, touching the head of the president of the United States who looks like him. Yeah. And I think that resonated. You talk about a picture that says everything. It does. But, you know, here's the thing, Axe. This this also tells you a lot about the president of the United States. What, what, yeah. uh, that, that at the behest of a four-year-old kid, that he would bend over like that and let this kid just touch his head. Yeah, uh, I think it no. Does. I think it's fair to say that the current president is unlikely to bend over and ask a four-year-old to touch his hair. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I won't comment. I'm just, on that. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just guessing. Uh, another one that I, I, I really love that's in your in, in your collection is him walking through. It looks like it's it's in the uh, OEOB next door uh, and giving a fist. Uh, Pump to a janitor as he walked by, um, which I think is not those kinds of exchanges weren't that extraordinary because we've seen them. You know, whenever he traveled, he always went through the the bowels of a hotel, and there were always people, hotel workers waiting, and he would stop. And but uh, that's another thing that people don't expect. No, and and we were walking either to or from an, an event in the old executive office building, which is within the White House complex. Uh, here, here's here's a, a funny anecdote about that picture. The guy's name is Larry Lipscomb, and I have uh, I had a photo editor who would look through every single picture that I took, 
And uh, at the time, it was Alice Capriner. She was there for the first two and a half years, I think. And she was looking at my take that day, every single frame. And she came across this picture, and she said, this is the guy that takes out our trash, you know, that comes to our office and takes out our trash. And it, it struck her that she was living history, too, in a different kind of way. Uh, and, and, and that picture became emotional for her that she knew this guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, those of us who uh, worked with uh, the president and were around uh, those years know that you were, you were more than his photographer. You were a companion. You were with him a lot. You were in his uh, card-playing quartet. Uh, on these long plane rides, playing spades, probably more spades than you actually wanted to play. Pete's nodding right now, hoping that the president isn't listening to the podcast. Uh, But um, uh, how did you, what changes did you see in him over the course of those eight years? I I, I have to say that um, from the time that I knew him as a, a United States senator, until, you know, January 20th of this past year and, and beyond, the, the, the core character of the man has not changed. I, I, I really believe that. I mean, I think he always um, was, was thinking about what's the right thing to do for, um, for people, uh, you know. And I think, I got to say that, I, I I wonder if anyone that wants to be president maybe should be a community organizer for a couple of years as a requirement, as a prerequisite, because I think that's one way he was able to – I don't think he ever lost uh, the connection that he had with those people in Chicago. And I think that you know, in the same way that Joe Biden never lost the connection he had with people in Scranton. I think that's that's a that's a good uh, a good background to have uh, when you're at the highest levels of of government, don't you think? Yeah. Well, I I think yeah, and I I think the fact that he the truth is he wasn't that removed from his own jur- working class journey when he became a United States senator and then president. I mean, he had just paid off his student loans when by the when he went to the went to the Senate. I think there's something uh, to be said for that. Um, as well, I what I noticed uh, was, uh, you know, I knew him for years before he became a senator, a president, uh, and I, I tell everyone that the night he became, the night he was elected president, I went into his suite with Robert Gibbs and uh, and David Pluff, and uh, you could almost f- see the the sort of weight of yeah. the responsibility descend on his shoulders, and I see him now. And that weight's gone. It is. It's it's sort it's, of remarkable. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, I've been with him a couple times. I was at the summit with yeah. him, and then I went down to uh, uh, Texas for that uh, benefit concert for hurricane victims. Mm-hmm. So I flew on his plane. I, I asked if I could go because I thought, you know, this might be the last time all five formers are together. Yeah. So I thought, from a historical standpoint, five I should photograph that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was on the plane for. You know, two and a half hours going down, two and a half hours going back, and you could see the 
the, the weight was gone. The weight of, of everything that you do and say is on your shoulders. Uh, yeah. No matter what happens in the country and in the world. It affects you when you're the president of the United States. Now you become—I I joked at the beginning, but I, I'm only—I'm only half kidding. You're kind of a cult figure now, in part because of your Instagram site. You've been posting pictures from the Obama years uh, during the uh, during this first uh, ten months, eleven months of the Trump administration, and they all seem to have an unspoken message. <laughs> so tell me, uh, tell me what you have in mind here. I didn't have anything in mind. Um, it's like <laughs> people think I'm like, you know, I had some grand strategy. I didn't. I just it almost be- began accidentally. And the the one thing that I was trying to maintain is um, being as subtle as I could and um, not being like, you know the Pod Save America guys, our old buddies, yeah, yeah, uh, and 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 just you know reminding folks uh, about what the last administration was like, and to do it in a way, as I say, was was respectful and playful at times, and let it speak for itself. I mean, I had all these people wanting to interview me about this. Uh, the last, you know, six or eight months, and I, I never did one interview because um, I, th- I thought that would, uh, um, you know, make it less effective. Matter of fact, early on, people started writing stories, even though I wouldn't be interviewed. And I remember the first time I saw the headline, you know, Obama photographer throws shade at Trump. I had to like actually look up what throw shade means. You know, <laughs> you clearly aren't a Pod Save America. No, you know, so. Uh, but, like, co- co- look, compared to, uh, I mean, I think I'm re- so subtle and respectful on Instagram, especially when you compare it to what some people write on Twitter. Yeah. Why are you looking at me, man? Nothing. I'm not looking at you. <laughs> Let me just ask uh, as we uh, close. I'm not talking about you, X. <laughs> What's next uh, for you? I mean, uh, for, for obviously, right now you're traveling with this book, and again, uh, o- Obama, an intimate portrait. I, I, I mean, I'm biased, and I confess it, but it really is an emotional experience uh, to uh, go through these photos and a great uh, look at history, uh, as well as at, at the man. But uh, now, what? What? I, I always, you know, the question is always like, what are you going to do to match this? Man, you're putting that kind of pressure on me? Yeah. Uh, I was like, no, hit, I, you hit the impossible question on the way out the door. Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of thoughts swirling around in my head, and I got to I gotta figure that out. I mean, this this year, just getting this book together, producing it, getting it designed and printed the way I wanted. And um, so this has been, this has been a, a book year, as I say, and I haven't done that much photography. I... Um, I did uh, I did something for Netflix with Kevin Spacey of all people uh, in promotion of the new season of House of Cards. I I did something with my friend Brandy Carlisle, who's a mm-hmm. musician in Seattle, and I did uh, I did uh, I did some pictures for her upcoming record, um, and I've done a couple other assignments like that. 
Um, uh, but I, I gotta, I gotta figure out, uh, what my next big, uh, project is. Well, I, I, I have to tell you that your, uh, photos, your, fo- one of your photos of Bruce Springsteen that you shot from the mosh pit, uh, on your, I think you, you, you may have done it on your phone. I'm not sure. Not on your phone, but it wasn't. You didn't have your your your. No, I had like a, a you know a, a mirrorless, uh, almost a point and shoot with me. Yeah, uh, but I was like fantastic you know, photo yeah, though. That's, that's you, listen, one. you you are um, you're 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 really really one of the great photographers of our time, and and as uh, as good a man. So it's been great to to know you, and it's been great to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. I, I, I appreciate it very much, and I'm looking forward to tonight's event. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.